Um, okay, first of all, thank you all for coming. I'd like to invite you into the gallery. This is our newly rehung 20th century gallery, uh, 1948 to 1967. We're going to talk about Robert Frost tonight, represented in this rather nice bust sculpture, um, done late in his life, although it seems a little bit tireless, timeless. Um, I'd especially like to thank you out on such a kind of blustery evening, although it's still warm. There's a sense of early autumn, a sense of frost. Um, Frost is, I would argue, one of the two greatest American poets of the modern era. He undoubtedly is the most popular poet. He's read by more Americans. His books are all in print. His words, his language, his titles have all passed into the lexicon of poetry. We think of, of titles, Death of the Hired Man, Two Tramps in Mud Time, the slogans. If you read popular fiction, detective novels even, his, his taglines are used as titles mortal stakes. He had a lover's quarrel with the world, um, the mending wall, the road less traveled, um, something there is that doesn't love a wall, good fences make good neighbors. And Frost is unique among the modern poets because he's one of the few poets that continues to practice a realistic aesthetic in a period in which art becomes more and more abstract. His rival, to my mind, in poetry is Wallace Stevens, who's one of the great modernists, one of the great abstractionists in American language. And Stevens and Frost had this rather, um, since geniuses all hate each other and then have to pretend that they don't, they had this rather bantering rivalry, and Stevens at one point said to Frost, the problem with you, Robert, is you write about subjects. What he meant by that is that Frost had a sense that there was something out there that you would talk about, that you would talk about people in the context of the lives that they lived. And in particular, the subject that Robert Frost had was New England. He very much cultivated the pose. He had white hair. You can't see it in this, but he had white hair, craggy features, a glint in his eye. And he very much, because he wanted to be famous, it was part of his life, he constructs himself as the kind of sage New England, slightly crabby, slightly crotchety man in the many readings and talks that he gave where he'd appear to be the kind of woodland sage where he would appear and tell the city slickers what was really what, appearing slightly dense but nonetheless with a twist in the tail at the end which would tell them that he really knew what was what. Um, so we identify Frost with New England. He spent most of his life there. And amazingly, or curiously enough, and I just rediscovered this if I ever knew it, he was actually born in San Francisco, born in 1874. He lives to 1963, an incredible span of years, an incredible, incredible span of time in which he was productive to the end. But this quintessential New Englander, this man of Massachusetts and Vermont, born, in, New, born in, San, in San Francisco. His father was a graduate of Harvard College, had many dreams, went west along with everybody else who dreamt, tried to find his life after the gold rush in San Francisco when you thought money was lining the streets. He married a... He had, had schemes of, and dreams of greatness. He tried to make it as a politician, very outgoing, gregarious, always bought a round for a house, buying the rounds, ultimately kills him. Uh, and he marries a gentle soul opposite to attracting a woman who belonged to a church called the Svedenborgians, which is a mystical religion that's practically impossible to explain. Basically, they think that life and death are, are, in, in separ are, are 
impermeable that they combine. They hear voices. They hear the spiritual world. So you have this very hard-headed man concerned with the Democratic Party running for office, trying to make a living for himself, and this rather dreamy wife and mother of Robert and his sister. Um, Robert, of course, this, this provides an obvious opportunity to talk about how Robert is pulled between these two poles, and of course he was. His father dies, though, at age 34 of alcoholism and broken dreams, and the family is left with $8 in around 1885. They have to go back. They have no alternative. Everything has failed on the West Coast. And they return to New England to the grandparents or the in-laws that they thought that had gotten rid of them, essentially. And Frost has a great line in one of his poems where he talks about home is where you have to go, where, home is where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And that frequently is seen, it's reproduced or, or quoted in Hallmark cards or greeting cards as a kind of banal sentiment of, 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 of hominess that it, that, that home is actually warm and loving. And what Frost, I think, is suggesting is that his relatives didn't really want him to come back. They thought that he'd gone away and they'd made it. And it was a burden. And there's this conflict, again, if you talk about the dreaminess, hard-headedness, there's the notion of home as a place where you want to be, but it's also a place that stifles you. Frost, who at this point is 10 or 11 years old, they go home, they have no money. His mother is struggling, to say the least. They're boarding with relatives who don't want them there. They're trying to eke out a living. He's working in a factory. Um, no real schooling. He's very, he and his sister are extremely smart, so they're kind of passing exams but not really going to school. And he's working at these kind of odd jobs, hoping, to, hoping really to survive. Nonetheless, in the midst of this boyhood, which is incredibly anxious and, and, and danger-provoking, really, the sense that they don't know where they're going to go next. They're, they're moving from boarding house, they're getting thrown out, moving on, always in New England, north of Boston. Frost concocts this notion, which, again, I think it's impossible to decide how genius ever really happens. He decides he's going to be a great writer very early on in his teens. He, he is, as I've said, incredibly smart. He starts to read Shakespeare and all the other great authors in his spare time. And somehow, uh, his, his father was an educated man. He, he, Frost himself is not getting any educated schooling, really. But he nonetheless decides that he's going to be a great artist. At age 20, when he still hasn't really published anything, he talks to one of his occasional school teachers and talks about the awful or the awesome capability of his own ambition, which is really pretty remarkable, this notion that he's going to be a great poet before he's done really anything except collect chicken eggs and sell them in the market. Frost continues on, gets himself an education. He is smart. He passes entry exams, goes to Dartmouth College, hates it, drops out very quickly. He's writing poetry all the time now. He falls in love with a woman who's a school teacher, and they have a kind of, she essentially subordinates herself to him. They're married for the rest of her life. But he's, again, he's, he's working at odd jobs. He's in bad health. Their son dies when he's three. Frost goes into a deep depression. He's still writing poetry late at night, working in a chicken ranch, working in these factories, and really with nothing to show that he has any promise at all, except that he stacks up this, these, these poems. He goes to Harvard for a little bit, again, passing the exam, drops out equally quickly. He's picking up language, absorbing it himself. 
And again, he's writing away. Publishing now a little bit, he has stage fright when he appears in public and is asked to read. He, he panics on several occasions. He has to have somebody else read for him. And this extraordinary period of gestation continues, and Frost, despite being one of the great poets of all time, does not publish his first book of poems until he's 39 years old, which, again, for anybody who's younger than I am, that gives them some promise that they might achieve something in life, that you go to almost age 40, half of essentially what should be your life, and that's when you begin to, to actually make a mark on the world that you intend to make a mark on. Frost somehow gets a little money together, and he and his wife go to England. For this most American poet, it's curious, his first two books are published in England in 1913 and 1914. And I just wanted to, to move into the poetry now by talking about the titles for those two, two books. The first book that he publishes in 1913 is called A Boy's Will. Um, he takes the line from Longfellow, um, A Boy's Will is the, is the Wind's Will. He cuts it down, cuts out nature, cuts out the wind, cuts out the notion that he's blown around by circumstance. But he establishes himself in this notion that a boy's will, that I can, I will, that your willpower is what matters, that you project yourself onto the world through an act of your own imagination, an act of your own creativity. And those poems are a little bit adolescent. They're a little bit self-conscious. They're a little bit prissy. They tend to be about flowers and growing up and young love and things. I mean, they're nice. They don't speak to me a whole lot. But anyway, they're, they're quite good. But I love the title, A Boy's Will, because he follows that up a year later. He's amassed this storehouse in all these years that he's in the boarding house writing. He, he banks these poems, which he now begins to publish in rapid succession. And in 1914, he published, I think, um, the the first really great book of the 20th century called North of Boston. And North of Boston, for me, I grew up in Massachusetts, and it, it's an important topic. I love the title because it suggests the absence of something. It's the absence of the city. You have Boston, and then you have everything moving away from it. And this is when Frost begins to make a mark on New England. He takes possession of New England as his poetic subject. Um, and what he does in that for North of Boston, it's a particular New England. It's the New England not of the Puritans, not of, the Christ, of, of, of Boston and the Revolution, not of the early 19th century when Boston was fly, or Massachusetts when it was flying high, but it's the New England after 1893 with the Depression, the, the rural depopulation, people leaving the land. It's after the Civil War with all the men who died in that war. It's the farms that are abandoned. It's the orchards that no longer bear fruit. It's the cellars that have fallen in. Um, and the sense of remnant, the sense of the hardness of the life, that you're on a farm which isn't making you any money. You're not surviving. You're barely making it. And Frost becomes, the, becomes really the poet of the urban or the rural working class, the little farms like his dad's family that is barely making it. And when Wallace Stevens talks to him about, well, the problem with you, Robert, is you have a subject, there's an element of disparagement in there that Robert Frost does not have the great topics. He's not talking about God and love and transcendental topics of, of 
great import. What he tends to do is he describes two men repairing a wall, two men who have adjoining property, and the wall falls down. The poem begins, something there is that doesn't love a wall, and what it is is the hardness of the land causes a frost heave to break down the stone wall, and the two men come out. Without talking, they fit the wall together, this act of communal working together, linking in dry construction the stones. And the neighbors refrain throughout the kind of, again, taciturn, unspoken, hard-bitten, driven man, the farmer. All he says in it is, good fences make good neighbors. That's his comment throughout the whole poem. And the the sense that I want to go back to here in terms of linking that to the poet to Frost's poetry is the sense of interplay and Frost between constantly pushing out to describe the world, to describe it in all its variety and all its heartbreak, and nonetheless to fit it as poetry. He's not writing short stories, he's not writing novels, he's not thinking at all about making a film, but the sense in which poetry creates a structure in which you have to inhabit everything that you seek to describe, like a wall encompasses the farmer's fields in, th- in which through the, through the cultivation of those fields you grow and you, and you try and make a living. So there's this push and pull in Frost. Again, I go back to the parents as the kind of obvious choice of the dreamy mother and the hard-bitten father. But the sense in Frost of push and pull. And Frost has, in a poem called The Death of the Hired Man, he concludes it by saying, only when love and need are one and work is play for mortal stakes. And this sense of work as play, play as work, the sense in that that life isn't necessarily a tragedy. It may be in some ways a comedy. It may be grotesque. It may be all that life offers us in ways that we can't really understand ultimately. But that's our mortal stakes. That's what we do with our life, that you have to in some way, through what you do every day in your work, you have to find play in that. And there's the element for Frost in focusing on these people, on focusing on these artisans, the people who are cutting wood, the people who are grinding knives, making axe handles, um, building boats, that in the element of work, you find a meaning of your life that otherwise you're not going to find because life is going to beat you down. You have to find a task that is fulfilling for you, and in that task you get lost. And throughout all this, what Frost is suggesting, of course, as well, is that it's only through poetry that that in many ways all of Frost's poems, although he's talking about making an axe or constructing a woodpile or dealing with the death of a son, Uh, he's really talking about poetry and how poetry organizes the world in the same way that work organizes the world. Um, And so he finishes north of Boston, which is in, in 1914, returns to the United States, receives respectful, not glowing, but admiring reviews. Immediately, again, he's banked all these poems. In 1916, he comes out with another book, Mountain Interval. He goes on to publish regularly. He, he, he wins four Pulitzer Prizes for literature more than anyone else ever has and may well um, ever do. Um, and he's continually, again, mining this, this New England landscape, this soil, describing both the landscape that exists beyond him but also, again, most importantly, the lives of the people who live in that. I want to read a couple of things from him as I I get on into it. Um, And I tried to avoid 
This is, again, the landscape of Robert Foss, this kind of desolated, after this poem is specifically after the Civil War, the death of the soldiers, the soldiers that don't come back. It's called the Black Cottage. And it begins with Frost, again, his intention is not only to write about the common man, but to recreate a common language using ordinary English. The sense that he developed, which was the sense in the sentence, and the sense also was that the sentence was the sentence of ordinary people, that he would use the way ordinary people talk, that it wouldn't be a special language that only the initiate or the people who went to Oxford could understand. It was very much a vernacular speech, which he would then infuse with poetry, and he developed a whole aesthetic about this. And this is the black cottage with he and a preacher walking through the landscape. We chanced in passing by that afternoon to catch it in a sort of special picture among tar-banded ancient cherry trees set well back from the road in rank lodged grass, the little cottage we were speaking of, a front with just a door between two windows, fresh painted by the shower of velvet black. We paused the minister and I to look. He made as if to hold it at arm's length or put the leaves aside that framed it in. Pretty, he said. Come in, no one will care. And no one is there. No one cares because no one's there. And it's abandoned cottage. The father or the husband has gone off and been killed into the Civil War. And the widow is eked out a living until the cottage itself has to be abandoned. And there's that sense of loss that runs throughout Frost, that sense that you're alone in the world with what you can do to make that world. Now, Frost, as I've said or emphasized, that he has this long period of gestation going up to 39. He publishes these books in rapid succession. And for for a poet, again, who achieves his ambition in his own mind before he even gets to achieve it in public, he plays this game. When I said that work is play, Frost has this very comic sense as the trickster that he's going to fool you. And he's always laying out these things that don't really happen. And one of the things that he says is that by 1914, 1918, he had essentially shot his bolt, that he was done. He couldn't write anymore, that he had banked up, I don't know, 50, 100 poems. And that was all he ever wrote. Now, this probably isn't true, because he did continue to write. We know there are examples of this. But again, this notion for Frost that he's posing, he's playing with the audience, he's, he's setting himself up as this sort of boy genius that then emerges suddenly later. And it makes it actually very difficult to figure out when Frost did write poems because he lies about it a lot. He says, well, I did that in 1914 or a poem published in, which we know he wrote in 1949. He says he published it in 1912. So he messes with the librarians' heads or the archivists' heads. Um, and, and he goes on. But what is true, I think, and this is a quasi, my judgment of him, the first four books are the best. He goes on, as I said, forever till 1963, his last public performances a couple of months before he dies. His last famous public appearance is that he reads a poem at John F. Kennedy's inauguration in 1963. And Frost, who I've said throughout, wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a great poet. He said repeatedly that he intended to be a great poet. He wanted to be famous. And one of the reasons why he adopted the diction and the language that he did was he wanted to appeal to as big an audience as possible. He also temperamentally was akin to that. Um, But Frost, having banked up these poems, the lust for fame, and also given how parlous or or poverty-stricken his beginnings were, he really wanted money. 
And again, this fits in with the notion of the tightwad New Englander who doesn't spend a dime when he can spend a penny and would prefer not to spend that if he can make whatever he wants to buy. So Frost goes on the lecture circuit. There's a huge public lecture circuit, which we don't really have a sense of anymore. People would go out to universities or even football stadiums. Frost, uh, really, it's really uncanny the kind of crowds that they would buy, they would gather. The, the University of Virginia hosted Frost, and they got 30,000 people to hear him read in the football stadium. I'm not sure that would happen today. But Frost, as he evolves, he had set himself up as a very complicated, deep poet, despite the superficial aspect of what he was writing about, writing about offense. But what he's really writing about is how are we going to die and how are we going to live before we do die. Frost goes out, and he does what happens to a lot of famous people. He begins to play a role, and he begins to play this role of the, of the as I said, the kind of sage old New Englander with the white hair. And he, he's very good. If you ever have a chance to hear one of his recordings, an iPod or iTunes, or, or if, the, if records exist anymore, CDs, and he, he's an incredible reader of his own work. He's memorized virtually everything, and he reads. But what happens is that he begins to fall into this kind of rote, stock New England character, almost like he's not clown-like because he's still a serious poet, but he begins to be kind of um, a cliché. And through a, in a century which is more and more interested in abstraction, complicated emotion, he begins to see more, more and more reactionary. Politically, he's very conservative. He falls out of favor in the 30s and 40s. And all the time that he's doing this, he's having an incredibly difficult time in his personal life. As I said earlier, his three-year-old son dies. He, he's, his, 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 the rest of his sons and daughters all have a variety of, of mental and physical problems. His son, Carol, ultimately commits suicide. His wife, Eleanor, dies fairly early and rather tragically of a heart disease that goes undiagnosed. And there's, again, this interplay between Frost with the image of him as the friendly, avuncular, advice-giving, white-haired man sitting on his porch, and then the real tragedy that he's working through in his own personal life. But in the public eye, he gradually begins to seem more and more irrelevant. He's being passed by by the newer poets. Um, he's a very difficult man. He's cantankerous. He's egotistical. He has a great line, actually, which I love, which was when he was negotiating with what, in effect, were concert promoters or poetry promoters for a reading. He, would, he wouldn't share the bill with anyone else, and he'd always insist, you know, like rock stars, he'd have a certain, you know, he wouldn't have the brown M&Ms or whatever. And, but he said, if, I, if I'm not the show, I don't go. And that would be, you know, the focus was on him, that he was going to be the man, who, he was going to be the attraction. He becomes more and more imperious, more and more egotistical. He's still producing quality work, um, despite what he said about, uh, about having, having stopped really working by 1918. He's still writing poetry. He's still winning prizes. He's still popular. He's still quality. But the fact, to be blunt, that he lives so long in this role of the old New Englander kind of leads us to think that uh, he's a kind of part of the landscape now. He's part of old New England. He's his own tradition, and we tend, the poetry establishment tends not to take him seriously. His own biographer, his authorized biographer, Lawrence Thompson, grew to hate him. And it's really, it's unbelievable that he picked this man to write his biography, and Thompson wrote it, and as Thompson wrote his way through it, he discovered that he loathed Frost and comes up with all these stories 
where Frost was abusive or he beat people up or he got in fights or he held a pistol to his wife's head. And none of this is, necess- is demonstrably true. It's really an act of turning Frost into the devil. So by the end of his life, Frost himself is kind of demonized and forgotten. And one of the things, since I was young and stupid at one point, and I sort of inhabited that growing up in New England, where I would look at Frost and see him as the conventional wisdom had it. One of the reasons I liked giving this talk tonight was it allowed me to rediscover the depths and complexities of his language and the, and the breadth, first of all, of his life, finding out that he lives in San Francisco, comes back to create a New England that exists in our imagination, has really been, has really been great for me. Um, Frost is so much deeper than you ever think he is just by looking at the surface. There's, his work with language is just is, is, is unbelievable. It's incredibly influential, and it deserves more rediscovered. I just want to end now. Um, Frost is, again, supposedly the poet of the simple language and the language of simpletons in the modern... Where the hell is it? Of the the poet of, of simple language and the poet essentially of kind of bump, of the kind of bumpkins he actually is being criticized for why are you wasting time putting words in the mouths of these farmers and these poor folk who really can't do anything more than survive in a kind of mule like fashion and 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 for the notion that Frost is simple I want to end with one of his his last really great poet poem which came out in 1946 it's called Directive and it's about entering. Frost in the poem invites us, he directs us into this landscape of old New England. He directs us into this landscape of old New England by inviting us to go backwards. And it's really quite a virtuoso performance. The poem is called Directive. It's too long to read the entire thing, but I'm going to read the opening now. Back out of all all this now, too much for us, back in a time made simple by the loss of detail burned, dissolved, and broken off like graveyard marble sculpture in the weather. There is a house that is no more a house upon a farm that is no more a farm and in a town that is no more a town. The road there, if you'll let a guide direct you, who only has at heart your getting lost, may seem as if it should have been a quarry, great monolithic knees, the former town, long since give up pretense of keeping covered. And there's a story in a book about it. Besides the wear of iron wagon wheels, the ledges show lines ruled southeast, northwest, the chisel work of an enormous glacier that braced his feet against the Arctic pole. And in that poem, I think you get the sense of the of the enormous pressure that bears down on us, the enormous pressure that bears down on Frost, the sense that he, playing for mortal stakes against a god in a landscape that was largely indifferent to him, to us, the way in which you assert yourself by establishing your will, by pushing out against everything that holds us back. Thanks a lot. Because I think that that's the reason, I think that's actually the key question, because it's the thing that confounds the critics, is that what he does in taking his personal life, and you have to be careful because they're not all about his life, they're about his, he is making poetry, and it's an art form, so it's not directly one-to-one, 
But what he does is he takes and observes the ordinary people, and then by his use, his incredible technical craft, he then turns that into art. And I think that's why he's an important poet. The thing that makes him exceptional, exceptional and one of the reasons why he's criticized is that he's using a very old form, namely realism, that I, I, I'm painting or I'm writing about what I see. But in painting and writing about what he sees, he's providing all these depths through his command of the language. And that's, what I, that's that interesting play between what the surface and the depth. Again, I'll go back to the parents with the dreamy mother and the, and the socially engaged father always looking to the public life and the mother always looking inward in this sense from Frost of combining those two things, that work is play uh, and play is work and the two of those things. And also the, the thing with Frost, I go back again to his analogy or his comparison of himself with craftsmen, that for Frost the element of craft and technique and ability, you know, finely honed. He spent 40 years working at what he wanted to work at, what he wanted to be ambitious and succeed at. Um, and those years were not wasted. It's 40 years where he knew, for however he did it, and I don't know how genius works, but he knew what he wanted to do and he knew how he had to achieve it. And he spends those 40 years developing his abilities. And then when he's 39, he, 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 he lets it out. That, that the next five years he astonishes everyone by coming from nowhere, outside of the establishment, outside of, he, he, he's outside of Harvard, he's north of Boston, he's away from the, the literary circles, he's not somebody who's sucking up to the New York critics, he's his own man, and that's the key to Frost, he's his own man. And he does it because of his tremendous sense of will and his sense of command over every instrument that he owns. And that's why he falls into this habit, of, this unfortunate habit of, of, of being, I guess you can call it egoism, but this sense that he's not going to put up with anybody criticizing him, that he's going to be invulnerable, he's going to be bulletproof. And that makes him very difficult to deal with. I mean, he says about his son who commits suicide, he says, I tried everything with him, I tried everything with him, and everything I did was wrong. And there's really that sense of heartbreak because he knows that he was unable to reach him because he himself is so self-contained. Yeah? So you said that he wrote most of his work when he was 39, right? Yeah, even younger. So, oh, so he wrote it young, so most of the stuff that's printed in his books that he has is from his younger years. Yeah, it's again, as I said, it's hard to know because one of the things that he did was he would rewrite continually. I mean, he'd do, he would do, he would write a poem in 1912 and then come back to it in 1938, change it, come back to it. He has its, I don't know, it's not even like a savings account because the money isn't, it's not like he's taking the money out. It's like he has this storehouse of instruments. And, and, and he works on them and he, and he lets them out. But it's very hard to know because he's always playing this game of being the innocent, being the bumpkin, that oh, all I am is a chicken farmer from Vermont. I'm really not that good a poet. In the meantime, he's working like a maniac on his poetry. But there's this element here. I mean, it is 40 years. He's working on poetry for 20 years. 
you know, along with raising chickens and trying to raise a family and farming his land. And he's, just, he's working on that. And, and it's in those years that, you know, he banks everything. It's like a reservoir for him where he can, take, he can draw on it and then remake it. I mean, he does, I just, the, the, the other thing, I guess, is the things that we know he wrote before 1926 are much better than the things that we know he wrote in 1940 to 45. The poem that I ended with, Directive, is probably the only really good poem in, his, in that book. I, I don't remember, the book that was published in the 40s. It's a very curious case. Yeah. Right. So why was the reason most of his literature you said was about anyway? Just because they moved back. I don't know. It would be interesting to know what would have happened to him if they'd stayed. And so maybe his, uh, let's not even assume that his dad lives. Let's say the family, the circumstances are the same. What would have happened to him if he'd stayed in San Francisco? Because you're dealing there with, you know, it's 1874. His dad, dad dies in 1885, 86. Okay, the same life. He wouldn't have gone to Dartmouth and Harvard. So what would have you know? What he wanted to be a poet. We know he, that was practically before he was ten. He wanted to be a writer. His mother had taught him and was giving him handbooks and and chapbooks. And so it's a really interesting question: What would have happened if he'd stayed? Because he is such a direct poet that he writes what he sees. He would have been writing about I don't know the Golden Gate, the surf. Would there have been, would there have been people? I mean, San Francisco is a small town. You know, would he have been writing about the whatever was north of? I mean, would he have written a book called North of San Francisco? I don't know. I mean, what was north of San Francisco in 1890, 1900? Were the you know who was living there? Um, it's a really interesting question. But the fact that he goes back, and again, I think the notion he makes New England his subject and really creates New England for us in our imagination, because he's looking to go home. He wants, Frost wants a home. He spends his entire life moving around. He seems unable to sit still. Again, this contradiction. He's always, he's always breaking contracts. He signs a contract to go to Michigan to teach. 18 months later, on a five-year deal, he's back in Massachusetts. He signs a contract at Amherst College to teach there for three years. He breaks that contract and goes and has a farm in, in New England. Um, he's always buying property. He's a really early real estate developer in Key West where he buys a couple of lots in Florida. He's desperate to find a home. And he never, of course, I mean, even with, uh, New England's a relatively small part of the country, but it's, you know, it's still five, 600 miles apart. Yeah, follow up. So would you say by him writing everything about New, New England, he was trying to portray that as his home? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he's trying to find a home amongst all those people. And it's very easy to read Frost poems because... There's, there's usually a narrator in Frost's poems. This is another difference between himself and the really modern poems where there's a notion that there isn't a narrator. With Frost, there's always an I. He and the preacher go to the black cottage. You know, you know I, I took the road less traveled by. It's I took the less traveled by road. Um, and I think that, I think that there's, there's that element of imposing himself on the land and creating it for us. Um, it is kind of, I think, to go back to your other, I think it's kind of intriguing, you know, Frost staying in San Francisco. Would he have been totally different? I mean, you know, would he have, you know, yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, and also just would he have been happier? I mean, everybody thinks, yeah, okay, maybe in the 1890s, California is pretty miserable, but, you know, you go out there and learn to surf and, and do the sun. Yeah, you had yours up first. You know, seeing that some of his phones and the other ones were kind of dark. Right. Well, I think that that's one of the reasons why he's popular. I mean, I think there is an element with Frost. I mean, I think you're exactly right. That I don't know whether they look at you weird because you, we still we still like stories of people on the edge who might fail. I mean, it's a melodrama. It's a it's a dilemma. It's a problem that exists socially. It's a problem that exists personally. Um, I think there's an element of identification with Frost. Firstly, he is legible. You can understand him. A lot of poems. The, the, poem that, the last poem that I read, Directive, is probably his most complicated and difficult to understand poem. But still, it's pretty easy to, to read it compared to what other people were writing in 1946. And that, that element that, of appeal that he evokes in extraordinary language, common experience, his son dying, he has a devastating poem called Home Burial where the, you know, the farm family loses a son, as Frost did, and having to bury the child at home in the little family graveyard. And that speaks, of course, to too many of our experiences.